And it was, I would say, in the age of 13, 14, I remember writing it down on a note like, don't care what other people think, just keep doing what is important to you. And also surround yourself with people who can support you because at that age, I felt like the more time that you spent with people, you either morph into them or they'll morph into you. So make sure you pick your company very wisely. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and I'm so pleased to be introducing our next guest, Dr. Julian Tan. Now, before we begin, I want you to imagine when you were 12 and you're top of your class, you've always been winning awards, representing your schools in competitions. Now imagine being called up during school assembly to receive your award and being booed. Imagine being singled out for the crime of being different, of caring enough about your own studies to actually do well. Because that's what happened to Julian. He was bullied for being an intellect in school. And what I found remarkable was what he decided to do in response. Julian ended up going to Oxford, graduating with first-class honours in the top third percentile of his year before pursuing his PhD at Cambridge, launching a career with BCG, and thereafter, leaving to establish the digital and esports division of Formula One. We will be unpacking all that, including what it was like planning out all of the various esports offerings at Formula One in this episode. Even if esports isn't your thing, I believe that there is so much we can learn from Julian. Things that might even run contrary to what possibly most of us have grown up believing that all you have to do is study, 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 and the world will be your oyster. But is that really true? Stay tuned to find out. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Julian. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Hey, Ling Ya. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So today, I really wanted to just delve into who you are as a person because you are a Malaysian who has succeeded and just had such a sterling background going to Oxford and to Cambridge and BCG before you went to F1 and, you know, heading their esports department, which is doing amazingly well and keeping the headlines in this COVID-19 era. So I thought before we go into all those amazing achievements, we could go all the way back to when you were growing up in Subajaya. Could you share with us what it was like growing up and who you were as a person Sure. I mean, first of all, thank you for the incredibly generous words. When I was growing up in Subang, it was an interesting experience because I actually had just come back from Hong Kong. I spent between the age of two and and six in in Hong Kong. When I came back to, to Subang, I was trying to adapt as well to the new life and having to learn Malay and, and stuff. I had an interesting story, I actually interviewed to go into Sri KL, which is at, you know, one of the most prestigious kind of, I think it's pri- a private school. I sat for the admission exams and they're all conducted in Malay. So at that point, I didn't know how to speak any Malay and obviously failed miserably and didn't get to go in. So ended up going into a, another school instead. I think it was a normal childhood, I would say, insofar as, you know, you have someone coming in and, and trying to adapt to, to this new life. And I had a lot of fun as a kid. In fact, my primary school days were some of my happiest, funnest days. I was a rotund kid at the time, loved my food, and made a lot of great friends in, in school, terrific people who, you know, some I keep in touch till this day. 
I thought what was really interesting though was the transition from primary school to secondary school was quite a big difference. Standard six and form one for me when I had moved from Sri Subang to SNK Subang Jaya. And that's when you were 12 and 13 years old. Yes, exactly. Um, was a bit of a, a shock because in standard six, I got along with everybody. Everybody was my friend. And then suddenly you come into high school and then you immediately get picked on because at the time I was a little bit overweight. At that point, I had made a decision that I wanted to kind of prioritize my studies as well. I wanted to just, you know, spend a bit more time learning what I was learning, enjoying what I was learning. And it was an interesting experience because I would say form one of my high school was quite a tough year insofar as there were a lot of people who felt it was fun to pick on on this fat kid who liked to study and and I became a prefect as well at the time. So by nature, I'm the kind of person who tends to follow rules. Rules are there for a reason. So try and enforce those rules. Obviously, that didn't make me super popular as well in, in school. So it was an interesting combination because the early years of my high school, I spent doing very well academically, I would say, representing my school at quizzes and competitions and getting these accolades. And I will always remember that between Form 1 and Form 2, when I had done well at these competitions, we usually have an assembly where they give out you know, the trophy in front of the whole school that Julian had won X, Y, and Z. And we were going to give him the trophy in front of everybody. And I always remember that every time I went up, I would be met with whistles and boos. And, and um, it always... It, you know, to say it didn't affect me, I would be lying. Like, it did affect me because I was at that point just wanting to do the best that I could because I felt like I was enjoying my studies. You know, I was just doing my job as a prefect and for enforcing the rules. And uh, that didn't make me the most popular person because I was also a little bit overweight and, and kids tend to be a little bit mean as well. So it was quite formative in the sense that I decided at that point that, you know what, I'm not going to care what other people think. And it was... I would say in the age of 13, 14, I remember writing it down on a note like, don't care what other people think, just keep doing what is important to you. And also surround yourself with people who can support you because at that age, I felt like the more time that you spent with people, you either morph into them or they'll morph into you. So make sure you pick your company very wisely. And uh, I started to lose weight, thankfully, <laughs> in my um, sort of 14 years old. And things changed, actually, when I started to lose weight. And I would say towards the end of my high school experience, things got a lot better. But, you know, I think a lot of kids as well in high school get, get bullied and I wasn't anyone special, I suppose. And I was just wondering, did the teachers not intervene and try and do something? I mean, you've mentioned before when you went up on stage to get that award, you could see in the headmistress' eyes that she knew what was coming. Could she not have mm. done something to protect the kids? Well, I'm just thinking like, what could she have done? I mean... First of all, she herself wasn't the most popular in school. She was a headmistress in school. She got a lot of ridicule. Her name was Pong Kwan, and I'm a huge fan of her till this day. She just did what was right. And kids being kids, you know, they can be very, um, you know, just being kids at the end of the day. But at the same time, it's still hurtful. She got a lot of stick. Not much you can do. I mean, you have an, an entire assembly of hundreds of kids, and you've got a corner of the assembly booing and whistling there's really not much you can do i suppose in that situation so you, she just you know kind of accepted it the same way i did i suppose i mean at the end of the day they're just booing and whistling it's not like they're physically injuring or harming anybody were you never tempted to try and blend in and maybe be mediocre rather than outstanding in what you were doing you know it's an interesting question because sometimes i ask myself that question and i don't know i 
the answer is no. I never really wanted to blend in. I've always wanted to just be me and just do me. And sometimes that ruffles feathers, but I've in many ways kind of accepted who I am. And I think a lot of it is actually upbringing because my, my parents are terrific role models and they have been very accepting of me. And oftentimes growing up, I think I've seen a lot of my friends, for example, where they have their parents you know, placing expectations on themselves and saying that you need to be doing this, 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 you should be studying. My parents never did that. My parents always gave me the autonomy to decide what I wanted to do. And oftentimes I made, I guess, the traditional, the right decision to study or, you know, do all of these things. So it kind of worked out that way, but they always gave me the autonomy to just be me. And for example, in an exam, if I don't do terribly well, they wouldn't make any comments about whether I had spent enough time studying or anything like that. They said, you've just done your best you've done your best and that's good enough. And so that was always, I think, a big influence in the way I've actually lived my life. If I've done my best, it's, it's my best. And in, in that turn, kind of accepted myself that this is me. So I've never really been tempted to blend in. If I'm like dimming my light like that for me, it just feels so wrong on so many levels. So I've never been tempted actually, which is an interesting thought because I know that many, many kids do feel the pressure of conforming because they don't want to get picked on. But I've ex- but I accepted, I think, particularly because of that experience when I was 13, to just accept that if you're going to do what you want to do, you're going to ruffle some feathers and some people will not like it. But at the end of the day, you do what's important to you, I suppose. I'm really fascinated about what you say about how you decided that you wanted to just do what you love to do. And mm. did you talk to anyone about this or was this just an internal decision that you made when you were 13? And did you know what it was that you loved? Or was it just, I just love studying and getting better at it? Um, I knew that I loved studying. I loved learning. And this was something from a very young age. And I used to watch Bill Nye the Science Guy religiously every single day on the Disney Channel without fail. And I was a huge, huge fan of science and maths because it felt like magic to me. It just felt like if you learn science, you could make all these cool things work. And it was quite magical in that sense. So I always knew that I liked learning. In terms of guidance from people, I mean, a lot of people have had influence in my life. I think whether it is my family or whether it's my friends, the people I spend time with, all of those experiences will shape my own preference and my own kind of behavior. But the ultimate decision to do something I've always felt was mine. And because of that independence or that autonomy, you know, that the ability to say, this is mine, I felt very much in charge of my own actions and my own decisions. And if I made the wrong decision, I know it's, it's mine and it's completely okay because I made that decision. So I think in many ways, it was very much an internal decision from my end to say, I don't want to care what other people think. I'm just going to do what I want to do. But of course, supported by the environment that I'm in, right? Because I'm fortunate enough to be in an environment where I don't have people telling me what you did was wrong, or you shouldn't have done that. So it helped to reinforce that kind of cycle in my head, I suppose. Do you begin to develop an idea of what you wanted to do when you grew up at the time? No. In fact, to this day, (laughs) I'm not sure I know what I want to do. (laughs) <laughs> um, I've always lived my life in the present, I suppose, kind of riding the wave. When I was in school, I enjoyed you know, what I enjoyed. I didn't think I would have gotten into Oxford to do engineering. I didn't think I would be doing a PhD after. Certainly didn't think I'd be working in management consulting and never in a million years would I thought I'd be working in Formula One in esports. So I've always been the kind of person who takes things as they go. And then if there isn't a great opportunity, don't shut myself out to the opportunity, go and experience it. And if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it's okay either way. And 
yeah, you know, I think my whole life has always been like that. It's kind of like, okay, I am here now. What is in front of me? I don't think too far, too many steps ahead. Of course, I try and prepare in the immediate future. And in some ways, actually, this is one of the things that I think about sometimes, like, should I not have a North Star? Because many people have a North Star. They say, okay, I want to be X, Y, and Z when I grow up. And for me personally, I've never really had that. I think the closest I've ever had was when I was a kid and I said I wanted to get into a good university. That was kind of my North Star. But beyond that, it's always been what opportunities come up and making the most of it. And I guess having fun because that's the most important thing for me. I only do things, and this is the personal way I live my life. I only do things I I enjoy. I don't try it. I know what I like. I know what I don't like. And if I don't like it, I don't spend too much time you know, doing it unless there is a part of me that feels that that's an important part of my being. Like, like working out, for example, I don't really like working out, but I know I have to do it because it's good for me. But beyond that, I, I always tend to do things I like. So if it's working out, how can I make it fun? So I play tennis. I love tennis. So, you know, it's for me always finding that way to, I guess, a path of least resistance, making sure I enjoy the process. And I always make sure I enjoy the the, the journey more than the destination because that's where I spend 99% of my time at, right? It's that journey. And once you have achieved something, that's great. You get a high, but that's not life. Life is the journey, not the destination, if that makes sense. And so you knew you wanted to get to a good university, but was the journey getting to the university actually fun for you? Normally it's quite stressful. And how did you (laughs) manage that whole process, especially when you were in a school where kids were not caring about their education, they were getting pregnant Mm. at 16. So it wasn't the most conducive environment as well. Mm. Very interesting. So I mean, my school is a very interesting one because on paper, it was supposed to be one of the, the top government schools. But from my experience, when you hear stories like your schoolmate has gone pregnant at 16 and the bullying in the school was terrible, like it was really, really terrible. It made you wonder. But anyways, I mean, there was that environment, but I was in my own bubble in a way. I maintained my bubble. And whether it was difficult, I mean, I enjoyed learning at the end of the day. And I placed no expectations on getting to a good university. So that's the other thing. I I always give it my all, but I try and not have expectations of when I should get it or feel entitled to get something. I think that I put in the hours. If I get it, fantastic. If I don't get it, it's okay because I've already done my best. So in many ways, this story of my life, let's just say, a lot of it is in hindsight and saying, oh, it's good because you know, at the time, I wasn't necessarily aiming for something. I wasn't saying, okay, I have to get into it into Oxford. Quite honestly, if I didn't get into Oxford, I would be completely okay with it as well. If I didn't get to a top university, I'd be completely okay because I know that I have a second chance. Like if I didn't get in first time round, potentially get in the second time round. And, and it's also at the end of the day, is only one part of your life as well, right? So the process, I wouldn't say it was hard. Of course, it's hard work, but it's not hard in the sense that I was enjoying the hard work. I was you know, enjoying the process of applying and the thrill of going for the interview, for example, in KL and and just having fun during the interview and just saying like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And and thankfully it, it worked out. And I remember when the email came in, actually, it was Thursday night. Uh, my mom was behind cooking dinner and I got an email from Oxford, opened it up, couldn't believe that I had gotten it. I literally could not believe that I was probably one of the happiest points in my life because at that point, you know, that was my dream I, that, as a kid. That was my goal. But I set no expectations on getting it. Like I think if it happened, I wouldn't believe it if it happened. Um, and it happened. So, you know, it, it provided one of the happiest moments in my life. So for me, I think it's important to 
I always say give your all and expect nothing and you can always live a happy life I suppose living like that and what was it like do you remember just entering Oxford and just being there those first few days and weeks Mm, magical magical because I'd done a bit of traveling before I've been fortunate enough that my family has brought us on holidays and stuff like that but that was the first time I'd lived alone first and foremost and secondly, we were living in college. So my first year, we were living in Jesus College, and it's a 15th century institution. So very, very historic, beautiful architecture, medieval architecture, completely new experience. It was exhilarating, very scary, because obviously it was the first time you're living abroad. And, you know, I think as most kids are growing up, you're always afraid when your parents say, I'll send you to boarding school. <laughs> And I was one of those kids. I didn't want to be sent to boarding school. But this was like being sent to boarding school because I was on my own. You know, there's a lot of emotions because I think with anybody who's entering university for the first time and living on their own, it's something that we all can kind of relate to. You're kind of out there. You're experiencing a new experience. You're living on your own. It's a new country. It's a new culture. You have certain expectations as well, how you want to you know, live out your university life. So all of that played out. And it was fascinating because... I also went from being top in my school in A-levels my whole life, actually, to an environment where everyone was the same. Everyone had the same story. Everyone was the top of their school. So we were all like, no one was special. Everyone was incredibly brilliant. And so trying to find your niche, you know, I think most people as well, when you're in this environment, you kind of lose your identity a little bit because some part of the identity is also you know, bound to how good you are in school. Like for me, that was, I was a smart kid. And then when you lose that, you kind of lose a, a sense of your identity as well. So the first year was tough because of that. Having to discover that you are not your labels and just, again, reverting back to what got you there in the first place, which is just doing what is important to you. What do you enjoy? And I think going back to those first principles were quite enlightening, I suppose, um, because you kind of lose it along the way, right? When you're so focused on, okay, get A's get into Oxford, you kind of lose how you got there, which is you actually really enjoy the topics and you actually enjoy the learning. So it was nice to go back to that. It was an interesting one because I think a lot of people I've spoken to as well, a lot of foreign students who come to Oxford or my college, a lot of them echoed the same thing. They felt like they lost a part of their identity and it can be quite a big thing in someone's life, right? When you've lived your life a certain way and you're having to repivot that in some ways. It was an interesting one. I I would say uh, the first six months in particular were very tough, but somehow I found that I'm actually, you know, not too bad. I can hold my own. I found that if I put in the hours and if I go back to actually enjoying the work, that it reflects in the results. And so I started doing a lot better. And academically at Oxford, I was very strong and I enjoyed my work. So yeah, it worked out well, I suppose. Could you give us an idea of the hours that you mentioned? Because it's not easy. You have far shorter terms than normal UK universities. You pack it in, you've got intense two-to-one supervisions, Mm. people constantly studying, everyone is brilliant. What were your hours actually like? So I'd say that the structured learning hours that are mandated by the school is actually not that much. I mean, you have like a couple of hours of lectures, then you've got the supervisions, tutorials. In between, you'll need to kind of work towards the tutorials. But A lot of it was my own personal choice where I spent a lot of time studying, too much time studying to give you an idea. It's rare to hear people say that I spent too much time studying. It's always the regret. I didn't spend enough time. (laughs) I was on the other end of the spectrum for sure. I spent a lot of hours. I wake up at eight, go for lectures, come back, have a bit of lunch, and then I study the whole afternoon 
have dinner. I'd say on average, I would be doing easily 12 to 15 hours of learning a day. And on weekends, at least six to 10 hours a day. And it started off as I like this subject and, oh, holy crap, there's more to learn here. Oh, they didn't cover that. What is this? And it was a bit of that. But then there was also an element of, I need to be studying in order for me to get the results because I, I find that if the more I kind of, you know, poke these questions, the better I do in exams. And then, you know, the identity crisis kind of thing helped me to almost fall back on, you know, actually I can do this. This is, you know, who I am. I'm kind of like a capable, intelligent person. So there was a little bit of that playing in my mind. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And because I had spent a lot of time doing that, I missed out on a lot of other parts of university that I felt was, again, in hindsight, really, really important because university is not just about learning and the real world doesn't work like a classroom. So a lot of it was in hindsight because in, at the time my head was in the books. I was just, you know, had one thing that I wanted to do and that was to study, study, study. And I didn't make use of the other opportunities. I, I was part of a couple of clubs, but that was a box ticking exercise completely. It wasn't because I was truly exploring my passions. It wasn't. It was, okay, I have these grades and I need to do these number of, of clubs. Let's just do it. I need to get this position. So there was that. And then the social aspect of it for me suffered a lot because I was spending so much time studying that everyone else was going out and you know having fun and, and going on picnic and clubbing and, and stuff like that. And, and there are elements of that for me that I just personally don't enjoy, like clubbing. I just, it's not my thing. But you know, other social activities... I missed out on, which I felt was a big shame because, and I always say this, if I were to do it again, which I thankfully had a second chance to do it in my PhD, which is kind of half the reason why I wanted to do my PhD as well, to have that second chance. But I would do it differently because no one tells you going in, into university that actually it, the experience of going to university is as much about what you learn from books, but also as much about what you learn about yourself. And you can't really learn about yourself when you are you know, not out there exploring different things. So I got great grades at, at Oxford, did really, really well academically, but I missed out entirely on, on this other side of things, which I felt like, well, it wasn't a balanced way to develop your personality or your professional personal life. But also it just felt like a huge shame because you traveled halfway across the globe only to spend it in your bedroom. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I felt like a bit of regret. And I don't like using the word regret because it was a decision. It was the right one at the time. But I did feel like I could have done it a little bit differently. And I felt like, yeah, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. So I applied for my PhD, which that was one of the facts, obviously not the only reason why I want to do my PhD, but one of the reasons why I felt like, yeah, I could actually do it again. And I did it very differently, had a blast. I would say that my years in Cambridge were some of my most fun years. And from a kind of like doing the things I didn't manage to do in Oxford, I managed to do in Cambridge. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, chapter close. I managed to do it and I had a lot of fun and I felt like I grew a lot as well. So that was important to me. Yeah. So what's interesting for me is that you actually wrote an article in 2012 in the Huffington Post where you actually stated how you look back and you wish that you had not spent so much time studying exactly mm -hmm. what you said earlier. And I'm wondering when that realization actually hit you that you would have rather you did it differently. Um, did it come when you were finishing Oxford? It came after and it came a few weeks before I wrote the article. So I wrote the article as I was feeling it, which I think in some ways made the article more powerful because people could actually like resonate with it because I was in the moment. That was genuinely how I was feeling. It was definitely a hindsight thing. I think it's something that's been brewing in my mind. And when you're in that situation, it's hard for you to actually take a step back and actually think, is this the right decision? And then 
have the courage to repivot the way you're doing things. Because when you're so set in doing something, it becomes a routine, becomes comfortable. So I was certainly not in that position when I was in the middle of it to actually say, okay, this is not the right way to be doing it. For me, at least personally, I didn't feel like it was the right way for me, but I was too deep into it to actually do it. But post, I was like, yeah, on reflection, yeah, I could have done things a little bit differently. On the flip side, I mean, like you did more than better. I mean, you were the top three, you got first, you got many collection prizes. All these things surely would have contributed to your later career as well. Yeah, it has. To what extent would you have wanted to change when these grades were so important, creating that foundation to continue to do what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, this is why I don't like the word regret because I don't regret it in a way because like you say, Yes, I didn't get that kind of balanced experience, but at the same time, I got terrific results, which have been a big propeller to other parts of my you know, future career or future development. So for me, I think that, yeah, I, I don't regret it. It's more like it's a learning. It's like, okay, I could have done it a little bit better. But guess what? I, even though I didn't do it, I still got all of these great results, which have helped me a lot. So yeah, it's more of, yes, I would say it's more of a, a learning and seeing how we could do it and, and applying that learning later on. Because at the end of the day, no decision is going to be perfect. They're going to be pros, they're going to be cons, and it's what's important to you at the time. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the reason why I don't like to use the word regret. Because I don't regret it. It's just part of it. And it provided a learning for me. So you then spent four years in Cambridge on a PhD funded by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. And during that time, you did it all over again. And I was wondering if you could give some solid examples of how you ensured there was a better balance while pursuing a PhD. Great question. I mean, the PhD experience as well is very different from an undergrad experience. The experience of a PhD is, I would say, more like a, a midway point between traditional school and work. You know, you have a little bit of a routine where you're working. So I always made it nine to five, I'm working. And then beyond that, I don't have to work. So I had a lot of flexibility around that. And, and the other thing is with a PhD, you have that flexibility because it's your project. So you can decide, okay, between 12 and two today, I'm going to go out and, and play a tennis match and come back. You have that flexibility to do that. So there's certainly an element of having that autonomy of, of your own time. But also, I think a big part of it was just the awareness, I suppose. I was aware, having my Oxford experience, that this is something that I should be keeping a lookout for and trying to you know, develop relationships, develop opportunities outside of my core PhD work, which I managed to do and find joy in. So I think a big part of it was awareness. There was an intent behind it, having gone through that experience, I suppose. Mm. And people tend to always ask the question, Oxford or Cambridge, which is better, which tends to not really be the question, rather the experience of how they're actually different. Mm. Since you've been in both, could you share how they are actually different? They are very similar. <laughs> They're the same. No, I mean, again, I think the experience I had, again, is, is different. I had an undergrad experience in Oxford and a PhD experience in Cambridge. And I enjoyed my PhD experience more than I did my undergrad experience is how I tend to describe it. But as a city, Oxford offers a little bit more because it's more of a city. You know, you have more entertainment, there's more food outlets, although Cambridge is really gentrified in the past couple of years as well. I mean, I think my experience in both have been very different, but yet very similar in that I was teaching in, at, at Cambridge as a PhD student. So I had insight into how the labs work, how supervisions or tutorials work. And there were very, very similar systems. There's also very similar in that you have very hyper-competitive, very smart individuals who in many ways 
are also just as lost as everybody else, you know? So you have that similar dynamic. You have the collegiate system. I mean, it's very similar. They're two different places. They're two different cities. So they offer different things in that respect. But yeah, I know. I think both great institutions. I enjoyed my time in both in different ways. I think everyone has got a personal connection as well to the university or to the alma mater. It doesn't matter what university it is, really. It's, it's your first university. You will always have a very special place in your heart because that's where some of your formative years as well were being experienced. So for me, it's Oxford. For other people, it's their own personal alma maters. And I think that is quite beautiful, actually. It's quite beautiful that everyone has their own personal connection to an institution and that an institution can have such a profound effect on someone's life in the future as well. And during that time when you were in Cambridge, you also started being a columnist for Huffington mm. Post and you were quite prolific. You posted a lot of things. And what amazed me was that you didn't hold back on what people might call very sensitive topics. Mm. You were talking about like the MH370 mm. disaster. You're talking about the Bible seizing debacle. Mm. And I just wondered be- about the thought process behind it and whether you were ever worried that you would get backlash mm. from something that was so sensitive. I oftentimes think back to that version of Julian and think, mm, maybe you should have thought a little bit more about what you're doing. <laughs> because, you know, in many ways, what you write, whether it's a Puffington Post article or a Facebook message or a tweet, is on the internet, so it's there forever. And as an individual, things change, right? You evolve and you grow and sometimes your perceptions change. But it's interesting because when I read back on a lot of the articles I wrote when I was at the Huff Post, most of them I would say I still resonate with. I think... It came from the heart. All of my articles came from my heart and how I was feeling at the time. And it was as much a therapeutic exercise. I was almost like displaying for everyone to kind of read, but also because a lot of people resonated with similar views. Sometimes they didn't agree, but you know, sometimes they did. And I felt like that was an interesting thing. When I first made my first article on the Huffington Post, I thought, oh, what a great opportunity to write for the Huffington Post. Not many people have that opportunity. So let's just write about something that I personally feel at the time. And I wrote about um, the title of the article, I could have chosen a more PC title, but it was, I think, Why Are Asians So Antisocial? Something like that. And I explored how I felt really or how I felt other people viewed Asians, myself being a little bit quieter. You know, we just have a different culture. So coming into like a British culture, you're going to have differences there. And I just explored that a little bit. And then that article did very well. A lot of people started sending messages and I think it went viral as well. And then it just kind of built on that. And then I suddenly had a platform where I could write about literally anything I wanted and the editor would trust me and publish it. She was... um, terrific editor, actually. She hardly ever got into the weeds of my article and whatever I wrote. So I had a platform. There were some current issues that obviously, you know, I didn't agree with. So I used that platform to kind of voice those opinions. And again, it wasn't about anything apart from just like, that was how I was feeling. And I felt like it was an outlet and a platform to kind of raise some issues, whether you agreed with it or not. I had my own opinion and just stated my opinion. And kind of going back to when I was in high school, it's kind of like, just don't care what other people think. But I think it's a little bit dangerous with the internet. You want to be a little bit careful about what you post just more generally. And at that point in time, did you have a better understanding of what you wanted to do after university? You mean after Oxford or after Cambridge? After Cambridge. Um, no. Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say I had more of an idea after Cambridge than I did after Oxford. And I think that self-exploration 
definitely helped, you know, having the space to do that and um, the opportunities to do that. I think towards the end of my time at Cambridge, I knew what I didn't want, want to do. So that, I guess, in many ways, that is almost as good as knowing what you want to do. At the time, I knew I didn't want to go back to academia. I didn't want to have a career in academia. It was after my first year of my PhD, I said I didn't want to have a career in academia because of the pace, because of the specialism. I didn't want to just be doing one thing. I wanted to be in lots of different things. And it's okay if I don't go to that nth degree in depth. I think that's fine. So I felt like consulting was an interesting career option. McKinsey, BCG, Bain came to Cambridge, did a lot of these career talks and mingling. And I got to you know, be exposed a little bit to that um, industry. Thought it was interesting. It offered an opportunity to pursue a career in London, which I felt was an interesting proposition. And yeah, and I applied. Thankfully, got a position. And then towards the end, I, I knew that I was going into consulting. But the broader scheme of like, what is this I want to do? I still, yeah, I didn't know at the time. And I'm, I'm not sure I still know it. I still know it today. <laughs> yeah. Were you never tempted to move back to Malaysia? Because you were quite passionate about Malaysia. You wrote about, you know, everyone must go and elect and that whole process of what it was like to vote outside. Very much so. I was as certain as I could be that I wanted to go back to Malaysia. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I had no idea what that was, but I, I knew that I wanted to go back. I wanted to do something, no idea what. But at the same time, this opportunity came up working in London. And when I took a step back, sort of thinking about maybe a little bit selfishly, I suppose, my, my own professional career, I felt like having the opportunity to work abroad in your first few years of your career can only be a good thing, whatever that is. Because at the time, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. There wasn't a specific opportunity in Malaysia, I would say, that jumped up at me and necessarily lured me back. So it was kind of like, I have this job in London that is there, great opportunity for learning. And then I have this not sure what I'm going to be doing in Malaysia. I'm just going back to Malaysia and figuring something out. I just didn't feel like it was the most prudent um, thing to do at the time. I do think that I, I definitely want to come back at some point. It's difficult. You know, when I was at Cambridge writing those articles, I would say in many ways, there was a certain idealism in my head. And most people, I think at the time as well, they had this picture of where Malaysia was going to be and where they'd like to see it going. And for a brief moment, we saw maybe a change of tides. And I guess as with age and as with experience, you tend to realize that actually it's never a straight storyline. There, there are twists and turns in, every, in everything. And um, I think it's not as ideal as you think it is. You know, Even the answer that you think is the right one poses its own problems. It poses its own challenges. There is no perfect idea. And, and it's about how can you still maintain a level of idealism in fighting for or standing for what you believe in. But at the same time, also recognizing that there is a wider reality out there and that you could also be in many ways, just speaking from your own bubble. You don't have that full picture of everything. And there is a reason why things transpire the way they do. It would be more effective to try to dig into why it has happened the way it has happened and trying to understand a perspective that maybe you're uncomfortable with. And I think a lot of the times, as it is with politics, there is always an apprehension or a reluctance to understand the other side, which I think is a missed opportunity. And I think as I've grown up, I suppose, those sort of elements have come into play. And the idealism that I had that this is the right way, I've kind of tried to get a better understanding, a bigger understanding on why things are the way they are so that I can help inform where I think they should be. 
So when I wrote those articles, being very passionate about coming back, I mean, I was definitely in that headspace of like, this is where it needs to go. Where I am now is maybe, I don't know, not accepting, but I'm more, maybe people will call it jaded. Maybe I'm more jaded. <laughs> I wanted to go back to the whole consulting thing. Was consulting the only career that you were considering at the time or were you exploring something else? I was exploring three things. I was exploring consulting. I was exploring engineering because my PhD is in carbon fiber laminate. So I wanted to work in a tennis racket, uh, equip sports equipment company like Wilson or Head in the engineering department. I was exploring that. And then I was exploring academia a little bit. There was one time in my time at Cambridge that I was exploring politics. Like I thought, oh, maybe this could be interesting. But I have a good friend of mine, actually, he works in politics. And so I have almost secondhand you know, insight into how it works and the things that they do and just felt like it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the best fit for me. You know, I think that there are many parts of the job in politics that it's just very nasty. It's really, really nasty. And yeah, it's unfortunate that it's the case. But yeah, I was looking at, at, at those few things. I would say consulting was at the top of my list because again, perpetuating where I was, not knowing where I wanted to go. First, it helped me open up my options because I was kind of specializing into one area with my PhD and I wanted to broaden that up and, and consulting offered me that. And so what was interesting is that you wrote another article as well in May 2015, where you charted your whole journey to trying to find a job after Cambridge. Mm. And how that was actually surprisingly really hard. So could you share with us why that was so when you had pretty much the perfect CV? I think that a lot of people, particularly in my position, you are accustomed to hearing people say, ah, don't worry about your job, focus on your studies, do well, get good grades, you worry about the job later, it, it will come. And it wasn't the experience. It was a very harsh reality, you know, seeing that actually it didn't work that way. The world didn't work that way. And it's a little bit jarring because for me, at least, I lived my life thinking that way. I lived my life almost expecting that it would be a no-brainer, that it would all be easy. But it's, it's not the case at all. That's not how the world works. And nobody tells you that, which is one of the biggest mistakes a school or your parents or your anybody really, people going through school, do is not expose your kids, your students, that that's not how the world works. I know you want them to study, but that's not a truth, you know? So it was very jarring for me because you'd go through, as everyone does, by the way, everyone does, you go through this process of interviewing, getting rejected, interviewing, getting rejected, no matter how, because it's not just your results. Your results are important in helping you get that kind of first look. So if you have a good CV, you're past the first round, but that's only the start of the entire kind of job hunting process, right? And ultimately, there are a lot of different factors. It's skill is one of them. Cultural fit is another. Like a lot of things that also are kind of out of your control. A lot of it is out of your control. The economy, I mean, you know, there, there are so many things that you, you cannot control that if you come in thinking that all you have to do is get good grades and you get a job, like you're not. That's not, that's not how it's going to work. So for me, it was realizing that that was the case, being a little bit angry <laughs> that nobody told me that. Everyone sold the dream that that was how it was to be. So I felt like mm, there was a little bit of like dishonesty here, but uh, it didn't matter. I mean, that was the reality that I was in. I had good grades. Did you know what you were lacking or what they were looking for that you didn't have? No, I mean, I think it's nothing 
personal because I think when, especially now when I'm hiring for people as well, there are a lot of different factors that come into play when you hire someone. It's not just the skill, it's how you connect with the person, which is a very, very subjective thing. And interviewers can put it down to, you know, I had a couple of times they say, oh, you're not structured enough. But I know that that's probably, that's not the only reason, right? That, that's probably another reason that, that maybe might be too sensitive for them to say, we just didn't gel with you. And a lot of times the job is that, whether you can gel with someone, because when you think about it, ultimately, you're finding someone who you're going to be working with on a regular basis. You need to be able to get along with them in a way. Um, you need to be able to feel that chemistry. It's a bit of like forming a relationship. So there are a lot of these elements that that is not so straightforward. Of course, it starts with um, filtering out people who don't have good grades and then you're left with people with, with that potential. But then next is exploring that person. How do they think? What kind of uh, person is he or she? A lot of subjective things that I think the job process tends to try and put some structure in, but ultimately still a very subjective thing. So I never really took it personally. I never felt like, oh, this company didn't choose me. They didn't like X, Y, and Z of me. I never thought of it that way. I always accepted that there was going to be a degree of, of subjectivity. I mean, eventually, as with most things, as I've learned in life, if you keep at it, you'll get it eventually. If that's what you really want, if that is what you've set your mind to, and you really want it, like just set your mind to it. You'll get it eventually. If it's not now, you'll get it eventually. And you did get your dream job, which was with BCG. And what was that like, just entering there and having your first professional job after such a long career if you were as a student? Mm. I think first, it was definitely my dream job at the time. But in hindsight, I always think, oh, what an odd thing to want to be a management consultant. Because most people, when they grow up, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a doctor. And then here I am, like, oh, my dream job is a management. I'm thinking, how did that even come about? I think a big part of it is the literature that you're exposed to in, in university. When these companies are selling the dream to you, you get so sucked in that you actually tend to forget, hmm, it's, it's such an odd thing to want to yearn and strive for, but you're in an environment where everyone is yearning for a job like that. And it's a hyper-competitive job, only like a very, very small percentage of people who actually get it. So you actually feel a little bit special. And so then it feels like a dream job. I mean, I think that in hindsight, it's an odd thing to say. That's definitely how I felt at the time. But, you know, my experience at, at BCG has, you know, I can only have nice things to say about it because it was the most formative two years I've had from a professional sense. My four years at doing my PhD was terrific. I learned a lot. But during that one and a half to two years at BCG, like in terms of my professional skills, the high pressure situations that you're put in, the people that you're interfacing with, high level senior management that you're helping to advise, those sort of experiences first are not normal for a fresh graduate. That is a very unusual position to be put in, but it presents a situation where you either do really well, which thankfully I, I fell in that, or you aren't able to adapt. And so the reality of the job is that if you don't perform, you're out. We have an up or out system in, in BCG. So you either get promoted or you get fired, essentially, or asked to leave. So it was a very high pressure environment, pushing myself or pushing everybody, uh, pushing people in this environment to their limits to prove whether they can survive. And in that process, you, you accelerate a lot of the learning, a lot of the professional skills and a lot of the things that you need to learn in order to kind of, I guess, do well in a job. So. I think that it was a challenging time, but I always tell people I don't hesitate. If you have an option to join a management consulting company straight out of university, just do it because the kind of the first, the, the learnings that you get, second, the platform, the springboard that it provides to your career, even if you don't see yourself you know, working there your whole life, the springboard that it provides 
you know, at one point it was almost every day that I was having a headhunter reach out to me. And I think like that's a very unusual situation to be in, offering you to your next move. And they, they were very interesting moves as well. So I think in that vein, I have only, you know, great things to say about BCG, but it is a tough uh, working environment. You know, you're traveling every week, you're working with senior management, and you're fresh out of university. What do you know about advising these companies? And then you're trusting your own process. I think trusting your own process that you are there because yes, you may not know the industry as much as these people have spent decades in it, but you are a smart individual and you can figure things out. And actually you can provide a perspective because you're not in that environment. You're not conditioned to thinking in a certain way. You can bring in a fresh perspective. And I think all of those different elements, it helps to build your own confidence in yourself and your your own skills. So yeah, I mean, and I made some really great friends at BCG and um, doing incredible things in, in their career going on. So I think as well, the alumni network is also very strong in that, in that respect. And you started to specialize in things like strategy and digital transformation. Was that something that just fell in your lap or was it something that you were naturally drawn to? Fell on my lap. <laughs> Lingya, as you will <laughs> notice, I don't plan my life. <laughs> it feels good, I go. Yeah, exactly. No, honestly, that, that is it. Or sometimes you don't even get a choice, particularly with BCG, when they staff you on projects. Yes, you get to state your preference, but a lot of it is dependent on what projects are available. So many, many times, way too many times, I was put on a project that I didn't really want to be on, but there you go, had to make do with it. And yeah, very much fell on my lap. Yeah. And when you were in BCG, that was the first time that you were exposed to F1 and worked with them. Mm. What was they like? Because eventually you moved over to F1 full time. Mm. It was interesting because F1 has never been a client of BCG. The opportunity to work at F1 was because my boss, Frank Arthoffer, he heads up our digital department. He was from BCG. And when he got the job to head up the digital department and the consumer licensing department, he had to set up certainly the digital department from scratch. So I guess he needed someone with a consulting toolkit who's able to do anything, basically, you know, who, who is not specialized, who can just get stuff done. And so he put out a job advert within the London office saying, setting up a new digital department in Formula One. Just for a bit of context, in 2017, Formula One was bought over by a company called Liberty Media. They're sort of like a private equity company from CVC. And as part of that acquisition, uh, Liberty Media made it a point to actually put in corporate structures into Formula One to actually help it scale. And what that meant was we were setting up, you know, the marketing department, the research department, the digital department, all of these from scratch. They never existed before, which is wild to think about, you know, Formula One as a sport, never even having a marketing campaign before ever, never having any research done. Like, you know, I think or a research department to do research. And I think like those elements had to be built from scratch. So I joined at that time to help set it up, help Frank define what the digital strategy is, what the initiatives are, where are we, and benchmarking us with the rest of our peer set, and where do we want to be, and what are the initiatives to help us get there, what is that roadmap, et cetera, et cetera, you know, defining what the initiatives are, who's going to be leading what. So that was my initial secondment. My secondment was to come in to help set up the digital strategy and, and help support that digital transformation. And then I was very fortunate in that as you know, we're setting something up from scratch, it was like working in a startup, a lot of new things emerged. And so there were certain projects that I was very deep in purely because 
there was nobody else in the company who was stepping up, I suppose, to take the lead. Esports, as a prime example, was a new initiative that was sanctioned by Sean Bratches, who was our MD in commercial, who's now left. But he sanctioned that project. We had announced it to the world, to the market, in end of July. And the tournament was supposed to start in August. So we had a few weeks to set everything up. And, and when I mean everything, I mean everything. We didn't have an idea on what we were going to do. We didn't have an idea on what even esports was. I think at that point, not many people knew what it was, certainly within Formula One. And it didn't have any leadership at all. It was just running. It was not good. So Frank one day sent me an email and said, oh, would you just go into this project and help to set up a bit of structure, help set up a process? So I came in first starting with putting a project tracker in place, which I think has helped a lot just knowing what is it you need to do and keeping track and setting milestones, blah, blah, blah. And then what quickly evolved into this fast growing thing. And yeah, and now sits under me and I manage that business. I've got a team. We've got terrific partners working with us on this project, performed really well. So yeah, like most things in my life, Lingya, I, <laughs> I literally, opportunity comes up, let's ride the wave. I always ride the wave and see where it takes you. And I, I like gaming. I, I used to you know, play a lot of video games when I was younger, but definitely not a gamer at all, I would say. Having to come into this world, I, I certainly wouldn't have thought that I would be heading up an esports division in Formula One. Yeah, it's all serendipitous. So it never crossed your mind that you want to work with Formula One. It just happened to be an opportunity that yeah. you just happened to take. Yeah. I mean, the job advert came out. I was on a project up in Northampton in BBCG. It was an industrial goods project. I was working on a pricing piece for toilet bowls and radiators and pipes. So at that point, I'm stuck in the Holiday Inn <laughs> with... Uh, by the way, I got bed bugs on one of the nights when I was in the Holiday Inn up there. So I was in the Holiday Inn working on pricing toilet bowls. And then this opportunity comes up. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> Ooh, Formula One or pricing toilet bowls. Hmm, let's try it. So I just submitted my CV, got called back for an, for an informal chat, met up with Frank at the time. He flew over from New York and uh, had a chat with him in the Hyatt next to the BCG office over tea. And yeah, and then he decided, yeah, he, he gave a couple of weeks and he had interviewed a few other people as well. And he decided that he'd give me the position. And what was the esports field like at the time? I mean, even now it's not fully developed mm. as when very few people have gone in, but back in 2017, what was it like? I think specific to sim racing, which is the genre that we operate in within esports, because esports is a, is a massive industry. And I think there are elements of esports that have really matured. And at that time was pretty much matured but for sim racing, it was very nascent in 2017. It was growing, definitely not growing at the speed that we're seeing right now. And a big part of it is because Formula One has entered into this space. It was kind of new. I think nobody really understood it, but people knew that there are you know, young kids and a younger demographic, video gaming and into esports. And the thesis was we as a company or as a sport, we've got an aging fan base. It's not a secret. Formula One has an aging fan base. So how can we start to build that new pipeline of fans into our sport? And there are a lot of initiatives that we've launched, and esports was one of them, one of the core initiatives that we launched to kind of help us reach that new generation of fans, that younger, more digitally savvy, global growing audience. And that was the thesis, literally build our capabilities in here, speak to a new audience, diversify our product set. I mean, fast forward two and a half years later, you're 
We're in a situation where nobody wants to be in. We've got almost all sports going dark because of COVID-19. But, you know, because we have had the courage to invest in esports back in 2017, we suddenly have an asset that we can leverage and utilize to keep a couple of lights on, I suppose, for our sport during a time where all other live sports have um, have gone dark. And I think this one of the main benefits of this pivot is also accessibility. Mm. Because like you said, that lots of the younger ones just don't have that opportunity to even go and watch a live race. Whereas with this, they can just log onto one of their online platforms and just watch and give comments mm. if you connected. And I read as well that it's also given opportunities not just for the watchers, but also the people who are driving as well, like Brandon Lay. Mm. He was 19 year old and now he not only has been winning his virtual races, but also had a chance to actually race in an actual race car. Yeah. So do you imagine that that's the new opportunity for youngsters? You can become a racer from being a gamer. You know, accessibility is such an important part of our program because the reality about our sport is we are not an accessible sport, right? We're not accessible in the same sense of say football, you can pick up a football and play in your local field. You know, you can't just jump into an F1 car. So actually the ability for us to use gaming and esports, one, to break down borders into our sport, to give fans, one, the ability to experience even 1% of what our drivers do by gaming, using the wheel, the pedal and simulator and gaming in that fashion helps to provide insight into our sport and break down barriers in that sense. We're able to, through our esports program, help get millions of people into Formula One through gaming um, in a different kind of way, change lives. Like with Brendan Lee before, he was a kitchen porter and now he's a professional driver for the Mercedes F1 team, um, professional esports driver. And like you say, also being able, and I think this is the other thing that's very unique for us because within Formula One, our esports proposition is there's a very high overlap between the virtual and real world. So the the blurring of lines from gamer to racer to real life racer actually can happen in our world. And the fact that Brendan Lee took part in his first ever single seater race last year, finished fourth in his first ever uh, single seater race, and he didn't even have a driver's license. I think that is an incredible story for us. Um, you know, I think for us, esports is more than just a competition. It's more than just a virtual competition where people video game against each other. It's, as you say, it's about breaking down borders into our sport, increasing accessibility into our sport, finding a new supplementary form of content. It's still racing, but because it's such a realistic form of racing, it's virtual racing, you're still able to kind of create something really compelling from that. It's, like you say, it's it's the blurring of lines between virtual and reels, you've got this new grassroots into motorsport. There's just so many opportunities for us to use esports in a positive way for our sport, which is why we see it part as a core pillar to growing our main sport. Whereas if you were to ask about the strategy about some other esports, for example, well, maybe their objective is they don't have that objective. Their objective maybe is to sell more games, for example, get more people to play their games so that they can sell more things and, and make more money. Whereas for us, esports actually forms a, a core part of our strategy to open up the sport of Formula One, to create longevity in the sport of Formula One, to build our expertise in different areas so that we can, in situations like this, thankfully have something that we can that we can go out with. So I think that it serves a wider purpose beyond just, I guess, a, a tournament that is meant to drive people to play a game and, and purchase the game and, and buy things in the game. 
And I would love to talk about what you're working on right now, which is the virtual Grand Prix, which is pretty incredible because, I mean, like when COVID started, which is terrible, it started going and affecting the world. And all these Grand Prix started being postponed, being cancelled. And, you know, you only had five days, I understand it, to kind of put together your first ever virtual Grand Prix in Bahrain. And what was they like just putting together all these things, knowing that this was probably going to be your main platform to reach out to your fans for the foreseeable future? To be honest, the thought process around a virtual Grand Prix actually started when the first announcement came out with the Shanghai, the Chinese Grand Prix, um, when it said it would be postponed because the situation was actually, I think, pretty contained in China at the time, but really, really bad at the time. So we were thinking, okay, we're in this situation. Can we do anything on esports during that weekend? And we actually scoped out an idea to run a virtual race on the Shanghai circuit for that weekend. And, um, you know, I think things very quickly escalated. A few weeks later, we had an announcement on the Friday of the Australian Grand Prix that the the Australian Grand Prix would be cancelled and that further postponements are coming to play. So we're like, okay, we really need to think about a solution that is scalable because the solution that we had come out at that time was not scalable. It was that standalone solution for the Chinese Grand Prix weekend. And uh, we had to move very quickly, think, how can we scale up this solution? We were very, I guess, in many ways... I can't kind of going back, nobody would have expected we were in this situation. But we had invested in a product back in 2017 that we, you know, had spent two and a half years developing. We have it, right? How can we use it to bring some good, I suppose, in light of this terrible situation? And uh, yeah, we moved very, very quickly, came up with a proposition, a solution, an online solution where everyone connects, you know, remotely. You need to figure out the tech, you need to figure out the production, you need to figure out the coordination. There's a huge amount of dependencies to put on something like this. So those five days to kind of set up that first kind of Bahrain Virtual Grand Prix was very, very busy. But we were only able to do that in that short amount of time because we had invested in this product for two and a half years. We had invested in getting all of the teams involved. We had invested in all of the teams having their own esports divisions within each team. Now, all of those, all of those different elements helped accelerate the proposition of the virtual Grand Prix. So, yeah, you know, I think, yeah, it was, it was five very, very busy days, put on a, a terrific show, and it's been growing from strength to strength. We started out with two F1 drivers in our first virtual Grand Prix. This weekend at Monaco, we had eight current Formula One drivers participating. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I think at the end of the day, it's about giving the driver something fun to do whilst we deliver some racing action, some lighthearted racing action for our fans during a time where they would have otherwise had racing action. Because at the very core of sports, and I think kind of going back to first principles, like sports and entertainment is about providing fans, consumers, an escape. It provides them escape. It provides them relief. That's why people watch sports to be entertained, you know, inspiration. And we felt that if you're not able to do that in the real world with the situation, esports still can provide that. Sports and esports have a lot of similarities. So we felt like that was a very strong opportunity for us to leverage our esports product to deliver that kind of lighthearted relief to our fans. Because I mean, right now, it's an incredibly difficult time. I think that if we can bring some smile or some laugh to people as they're staying at home, playing their part to combat this virus, then, you know, that's certainly a good thing. And I want to draw on the element you've mentioned of fun because it's very clear you've drawn a clear line saying that this virtual Grand Prix is for entertainment purposes only. 
Whereas like clearly it's drawn from the early established two and a half years ago pro series where you've got all your Brandon Lee's mm. coming up and they essentially run the slime platform, same idea. So why was there that distinction saying that it's only for entertainment? I think there is an acknowledgement that for the pro gamers, they are the best in the world on the game. So their entertainment is, is, is slightly different in that people will tune in because they want to see amazing racing on the video game which you can't replicate in real life. You know, all of the cars are equalized. The drivers are more risk-taking. So you'll get more incredible moves. So you'll see a crazy level of racing with that proposition. Whereas the virtual Grand Prix, the thesis for that was actually, how can we use racing to bring to fans racing between the F1 drivers if they can't do it in the real world? So that's more centered around the personalities, more centered around the people that our fans want to see racing against each other on a video game if they can't do it in real life. There is an acknowledgement that these are professionals when it comes to, and the best in the world when it comes to driving real-life Formula One cars, but they're not gamers, right? They're not gamers. You can't expect them to be performing at the level of a Brandon Lee, for example, who's, you know, that's what they live, breathe. Is like asking Brandon Lee to jump into a real-life Formula One car and then expecting, you know, him to matching a Charles Leclerc. So I think being acutely aware of that and, um, you know, I think we shaped our, pro- our product with the acknowledgement that these guys are not professionals. These guys are racing drivers who will pick up a video game. And there are certain things that is transferable because they're driving on a wheel and a pedal. Ultimately, it's a completely different platform. So one, you're doing a disservice to the fan because they're not going to get the high-end competition because these guys are not gamers. We have a race before the Virtual Grand Prix centered on the pro gamers that if you want to watch high-end gaming, you can watch that. But if you don't want to, you can watch your personalities race for fun. And it would be doing a disservice to our fans. It would be doing a disservice to our drivers. Ultimately, you can't expect that of our drivers. They are not professional gamers. And then third, you're doing a disservice to, you know, I think to the operations of it all. Because when you start to pivot towards something that's more professional, the requirements that are needed for like professional esports is much, much higher. You know, the fact that with our virtual Grand Prix, we can rely entirely on in-game adjudication. If you did real, if you did a professional esports, you couldn't because the in-game adjudication is, is not esports level. So you need real people adjudicating the race, like in a real life race, for example. So from a resource perspective, operations perspective, you also increase your com- complexity for not a lot of benefit. We were very clear about the positioning of the product and knowing what it was serving. It's for the fans to get them to see their drivers race for fun. So we positioned our product that way, yeah. And what really fascinated me as well was that, I mean, a lot of people write about this as well, that you try and make it as realistic as possible. Like in the Monica Grand Prix, I was watching it and you even introduce wet conditions and going to the tunnel and going out again, which is definitely like something that is a challenge. But at the same time, you have other things like, for instance, the cars never get damaged. So then you have drivers just being completely reckless. And I was reading the comments that everyone was going, why are they no damage? Why are they no damage? Like, how can you allow this to happen? And there was so much anger there as well. Yes. Like, how do you guys decide what to introduce and make it real and what not to? Well, I think... Kind of going back to the kind of product it is, these guys are not professional gamers. So we didn't want to introduce damage because if we introduce damage in Monaco, especially as a race circuit, nobody will be finishing. <laughs> well, not nobody, but you know, you would have chaos everywhere and you'll have a lot of uh, DNFs and it just wouldn't be a nice show. At the end of the day, no fan will want to watch that anyways, right? So like I said, we have got two propositions. We've got 
the professional gamers where damage is on is the most realistic you can get. You want to watch that kind of racing, watch that. It's, it's, it's just for the virtual Grand Prix. And then the virtual Grand Prix is for fun, right? It's not meant to be a replacement of um, real life racing. It's not meant to be a replacement of anything. It's its own product. People can enjoy it for what it is. And yeah, I, I completely get, you know, I think that people want to see some damage so that things don't, you know, don't kind of ricochet off walls and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember what the implication of a decision like that will have on the wider race. I mean, one, we wouldn't want to be in a, in a position where we have many people who have been disqualified or who do not finish because of that decision. That one doesn't give the fans something great to watch. Like imagine if, let's say, half of the grid, for example, is, is wiped out and then you're just watching 10 cars. This is not fun. And then the headlines that will come out from that like, is not a productive outcome for anybody. So, you know, I think people have to acknowledge that these guys are professional racing drivers. They are not professional gamers. And yes, there is crossover, but they're still completely different platforms. And this is not the purpose. The purpose is not to give you a replacement for the real life race because you can't, right? You can't do that. It's about having a bit of fun with our F1 drivers and, and people can actually, you know, can resonate with. I mean, I always take comments on social in particular with a pinch of salt because it's always the most vocal people and we always take note of it. We're like, okay, that, that is something to take note on. We'll see how we can evolve it. But in this particular case, yeah, it's a difficult one. There's, there is no right answer. I do know that if 100% damage is not the right answer, is it 25%? I don't know. But yeah, we chose zero. It is what it is. We might evolve it. Who knows? And then picking on the idea of social, I mean, like you have had incredible response. I think when you first started, you had around 30,000 viewers and you now are picking around 400,000 viewers. And even on Twitch, where the drivers will actually show what their perspectives is from them, like Lando, Norris had over 100,000 at one point. Is this kind of viewership something within your expectation or is just completely beyond what you thought you were going to get? Yeah, beyond. Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, I think that we knew it would perform strong. Because you've got people at home, they they want to watch live rate, they want to watch live sports, and in the absence of being able to watch any live sports, you've got something like this to kind of keep people entertained. But um, yeah, no, I mean the the numbers that we are seeing with the virtual Grand Prix, they are you know many many times bigger than any other esports activities that we've done in the past, um, which I think is a great thing because it shows that people are enjoying it, they're resonating with it. And do you think that this kind of thing will be continuing to stay once you manage to get your actual real life races back on? Because I mean, I noticed that you're putting more and more resources into it. For instance, the price money has gone from 300000 to 500000 So clearly you feel that it's a main pillar of the F1 business now. Yeah, I mean, I think that our esports program is definitely growing to be a very strong part of the business. It's performed very, very strongly. We've got great reception. And I think knowing exactly what role it plays in the wider business is important. In terms of the virtual Grand Prix themselves, I think there will be elements that we've learned that will help inform our strategy going forward. You know, I think things like being able to see the driver's reactions like on Twitch, that you just can't see behind a helmet. Like those sort of elements that you kind of pull out with gaming and with esports, I think is an interesting one that we can look to develop further. The fact that doing races online, you know, I think there was always an expectation with esports that there's always going to be a live event element of an esports tournament. And there are many reasons for that. 
But obviously, the situation has forced a lot of businesses to rethink how they do their esports programs. I think esports is still relatively nascent in the business. It's, it's only you know we're approaching our third year at, right now, and it's yeah it's still very nascent, but it's growing very very quickly. It's an exciting part of the business. We have many areas that we still haven't tapped in, whether that's mobile esports. There are a lot of different areas that I think would be interesting to to explore. We've got a tournament in China. The China Championship, where we're finding our fastest Chinese gamer to feed into the F1 East Pro Series to be picked by an F1 team. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of opportunities. It'd be interesting to to kind of follow it. And I imagine that when people see how successful you're being, they all want to jump onto this platform as well. So, is there an idea of how you can stay ahead of them?、Mm. I think that I, I oftentimes get this question, and, and the response I tend to give is. The reality with esports is the barriers to entry are very low. You know, you just need a game, you need some rules, you need some prizes, and then you've got an esports tournament. Which is why, like right now, it's a really saturated, saturated industry. You've got people coming in, particularly in sim racing, a lot of people coming in right now. I think what's important is for, and this is me putting on my consulting hat on. You need to create something that's unique, something that has a competitive advantage, something that people cannot copy. And I think that for us. The element is Formula One. People can't copy Formula One. Formula One is an incredibly magical world. The fact that we can align esports and F1 to create something that's unique is very important. The fact that we've got all ten Formula One teams participating, each of them having their own esports team, and by virtue of that, means that we're able to kind of give experiences nobody else can give. You know, you're video gaming in your bedroom one moment, and then you're signed on to a Mercedes F1 team, a Ferrari esports team. And you know, all of a sudden, you're training alongside the likes of Mick Schumacher, or training alongside the likes of Valtteri Bottas. You know, like those sort of experiences, no esports competition can give because that's unique to Formula One. And so, a lot of other esports, I would say, like they tend to compete with prize money. You know, okay, let's give more money, more money, more money, and it does make a great headline, but it's just not sustainable because then you enter into a prize war, and you know, who wins in all of that. So for us, give a decent, fair prize fund for our teams who are participating. How can we, you know, have them more integrated into this world, create more special moments, special opportunities for our fans? And yeah, and this worked so far. I mean, our, that's our north star. The north star is esports, F one, get them closer together, make sure that they are the they're, they're as close as they can be, and they'll be very powerful. Thank you so much for bringing us into your world because it's such a fascinating and new area and. Speaking of North Star, do you feel that you found your North Star or your wife <laughs> at this point? <laughs>、uh, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on on the chat.、I、really enjoyed the chat. But in terms of finding my own North Star,、um, I have a North Star, and it's not necessarily what people think it is. I think for me, it's I want to just be happy. I know it sounds so simplistic, but I want to just be in the moment, and I just want to experience life. As it is, and I want to keep reminding myself of that. I mean, I feel I've done a, a pretty good job my whole life, kind of living those words. But it's something that you tend to get caught up with what happens in work or life, or whatever. You tend to forget that, and I think that that for me is an important part. I want to have fun, whatever it is I'm doing. You know, just be kind and and do your own thing, and and just be happy, live in the moment,、yeah. and just do you. Because I think that. Certainly, when I was younger, I definitely spent you know way too much time worrying what other people thought about me. And like I said, I decided in thirteen, let's not forget, just forget that, and just be happy. Because at the end of the day, you're doing all of these things, looking for success is for what is to be happy. So you can shortcut that process immediately by making that decision. 
And do you have an idea of what kind of legacy you want to leave behind? Ooh, legacy. No, I, I don't think about that. Yeah, I don't think about that. I mean, I think that what I want to leave behind is people who I've spoken to or people who I have had the privilege and opportunity to get to know and work with. I'd like them to have had a positive experience interacting with me. I'd like to know that whilst I'm having fun, other people are also, you know, getting positive vibes as well. I think that I want to be kind to people. I think that's something that people don't talk enough about. And it's easier said than done sometimes, particularly to people who you're very, very close to, whether it's your family, you know, you tend to take a lot of things for granted. So just being, for me, I think it's just being in the moment and experiencing life as it is and just having fun and, and have, being a positive influence to people you meet. And yeah. And what do you think are the most important qualities that someone should possess if they want to be as successful as you? I would say... Ooh, this is hard because it's so personal, isn't it? Like I always say like success is very, very personal. I think that there is a traditional model of success and sometimes people don't do that and then suddenly they're happy, but you know, that, that's still successful in their own right. I think for me, a few things. Okay. I think one, always give your all in whatever you do. Never hold anything back. Always do your best. And then in parallel, have no expectations. I always go back to that because you can never go wrong. You have zero expectations, but do your best. You will always be happy. And yeah, don't care what people think about you. Yeah, don't care about that because you just do what you want and have fun. And that's the most important thing. Brilliant. And where can people go to find out more about you and follow what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't have a presence as such. I mean, I have my own personal socials. I guess my Twitter has kind of evolved into my work Twitter where I tweet a lot about my work at present. I mean, the news, f1.com, um, f1esports.com. I think a lot of my esports work gets reported as well in privileged enough to get in the Financial Times, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Yeah, so there's always news bubbling around esports. Esports is such a hot topic at the moment. It's on everyone's lips, so... Yeah, I'd I'd love to see Formula One out there with the other brands kind of charting our way within this space. And and is there anything else that you feel people should know that we haven't covered yet? Uh, People should know that success is personal. You can't live life doing what other people expect you to do. You can't live life, you know, trying to live up to someone else because you're never going to, to reach it. You need to... You just, I think, know that who you are, I know it sounds really, really kind of cliche, but like who you are is not your labels. You know, I actually listened to a really powerful podcast middle of last year that I would say is one of those aha moments for me. It's a light bulb moment. And I'm fortunate to have a few in my lifetime. And it's, um, it's by Oprah. And she is interviewing this spiritual leader called Eckhart Tolle. And, um, uh, it's part of Oprah's Super Soul Conversations. It's called Oprah on the False Power of Ego. And in there, it's a brief introduction into her kind of exploration of what the ego is, who you are versus who the ego is. And then that podcast actually opened up my eyes. It was a huge aha moment in me distinguishing like who it is I am and who it is I think I am, which is my ego. And uh, it led me down a kind of trail of, you know, picking up the book by Eckhart Tolle. And there's a whole podcast of Oprah interviewing Eckhart. I really recommend kind of, you know, if you have the time, just listen to it on your way to work or something. It's, it's a very, very enlightening, powerful podcast. But anyways, I digress. That podcast was very powerful because it made me realize 
I knew it already, but it helped me articulate these kind of uh, concepts in my brain of, you know, what is the ego? Who is it I am? Who, who, who am I? And, and what does it mean to be me? And it leads into happiness and stuff like that. So really recommend that podcast if you get the chance to kind of listen to it. Thank you so much, Julian. I'm so grateful you actually said yes to this interview it's and just bring us through your whole life and what it's like, you know, working at Formula One and being on the forefront of esports. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Lingya. It was fun. Thank you for listening to episode three of the So This Is My Why podcast. I would love to know what you thought about it. And you can do so by leaving your comments on the review page of your favorite podcasting platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or heading over to sothisismywhy.com forward slash episode three. You will also find the show notes there. So this is my why.com forward slash episode three and can even subscribe to the mailing list so that you know when the next episode comes out. In episode four, we will be meeting a Hollywood stunt actress who grew up in Detroit, Michigan with a love of theater. Moved to LA at the age of 22 with a dream, but no job, no connections, nothing. And we will learn what it was like to build a career in Hollywood from scratch how she first discovered the world of stunts, secured a place in an invite-only stunt training center managed by the world-renowned circus-trained Bob Yerkes, and what it was like to be, well, beaten, strangled, shot, suffocated, and die in pretty much every single way imaginable as a career. We will be unpacking all that, as well as what her future plans are. Big hint, it involves flipping cars. So don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment, and I'll see you in episode four.